We're not here just to win an election. We are here to win something for our country. Well, welcome to another Water Cooler Conversation from the Menzies Research Centre. I'm Nick Cater, the Executive Director of the Menzies Research Centre. And today's discussion goes to the heart of the debate about freedom of religion in Australia and the militancy of those who are determined to banish matters of faith from the public square. The elevation of Dominic Perrottet as the Premier of New South Wales in October 2021 unleashed a wave of ad hominem attack on the new Premier based on his Catholic faith and his socially conservative values. It was more evidence, if we needed it, of the institutionalised hostility to the Christian religion in general and the Catholic faith in particular, in large sections of the media, which we've noted before. Here, for instance, is how the ABC TV News portrayed Perrottet the night before the party room ballot. As treasurer, he helped steer the state's economy through the pandemic. But the outspoken right-wing warrior has also attracted plenty of controversy over the years. A father of six and a devout Catholic. Some commentators believe those strong religious views will be a turn-off for many voters. It is a problem. It is a problem for women, LGBTQI people um, and anyone of a different faith. So um, I'm concerned. I think a lot of women will be. Well, to discuss issues of faith in the public square, I've invited back two recent water cooler guests, both of them authors, to add some fresh perspective. David First Roberts is the author of God and Menzies, The Faith That Shaped a Prime Minister and His Nation, which incidentally includes a foreword by the current Prime Minister, Scott Morrison. Greg Sheridan writes for The Australian, and his latest book, Christians, The Urgent Case for Jesus in Our World, makes a strong intellectual and moral case for the positive role faith plays in both the private and public life. Well, welcome to you both. Uh, Greg, what did you make of the ferocity of the attacks on Dom Perrottet? I was a bit surprised by the reaction to Dominic Perrottet, but it's it's of a kind with the reaction to Scott Morrison. A um, couple of deeper points out of it, I think. One is the culture is now so unfamiliar with uh, any observant Christianity or any believing Christianity that it finds any orthodox Christianity completely bizarre, like from the planet Mars or something. I mean, what a shocking thing that Dominic Perrottet has six kids. I mean, what a, what a terrible, shocking, you know, this is plainly a crime uh, against modern civilization. And similarly, the, the Stephanie Dowrick article, which attacked him in the Sydney Morning Herald and The Age, attacked Scott Morrison and was full of the most preposterous claims about what Pentecostalism believes. I mean, uh, just absurd uh, misunderstanding and a similar misunderstanding of Catholicism. I think it does show the way Christianity has been whited out of the culture. And the other thing, I think the political culture only accepts now one type of Christian, and that is the social justice Christian. Now, I don't cast any aspersions on anybody's Christianity at all. And social justice Christians, that's, that's great, they're, they're fine. But the only acceptable type or brand of Christianity in contemporary political culture is someone who jettisons all the moral and um, eschatological and transcendent claims of Christianity, but campaigns for social justice, meaning more government expenditure and so forth, and says that that has a Christian asp aspiration. So Kevin Rudd was allowed to be 
a public Christian, but Dominic Perrottet and Scott Morrison are not. The final thought is, though, I don't think these attacks have much traction anymore. They're, they're just so absurd. David, what did, what did you make of it, particularly in light of the particular attack on him as a Catholic? It, it struck me as almost a, a throwback to the old sectarianism which, which Robert Menzies did so much uh, to try and eliminate. How, how, much surpri- how surprised were you about that? Yes, well, thank you, Nick, and uh, great to be with you, and great to be with you too, Greg, Thanks, and uh, congratulations, Greg, on your excellent book. And, and you too, David, on yours. Thank you, Greg. So to next question, um, I was both unsurprised and surprised by the public reaction from some quarters to uh, Dominic Perrottet's election within the party room as Premier. On the one hand, I was unsurprised because um, our public culture in Australia over the last 50 years has become increasingly secular with a waning influence of the church and less Christian presence in public life, uh, that has created something of a vacuum that has been filled by more secular voices. And uh, also just our cultural zeitgeist has moved so far away from traditional Christian values and moral truths that uh, there is now this deep cultural animus towards Christianity and its claims of not only supernatural revelation, but also objective moral truths, orthodox forms of Christianity like Roman Catholicism and evangelical Protestantism and Eastern Orthodoxy are seen as very foreign and very uncongenial to the new cultural zeitgeist we find ourselves in. Um, I was surprised by the uh, degree of antipathy towards uh, the new Premier, Dominic Perrottet, because um, he, after all, represents a faith that about 43% of Christians hold to and about uh, 23% of the entire Australian population. It's a faith, really, that teaches uh, not only the gospel of Christ, but also um, the unique value of every individual. And it In its social teaching, it also has a vision for um, advancing the common good of all people, whatever their faith or creed. And that would surely um, be congenial to a uh, pluralist society such as Australia. I think, Greg, that that touches, that goes to one of the, the themes of your book, and that is that Christianity is stubbornly refusing to die out in the face of scientific thought uh, or modern progressive thought and if you if if you thought that christianity was on weak ground when it comes to you know factual basis or on the basis of what it what it provides for us in terms of our our, our awareness and knowledge of the world around us and the people and and how to good, live a good life you would think that it was getting weaker but there's no sign that it is i think is that right is that your reading well nick i think um there are simultaneous contradictory trends. So in the West, there is an ambient statistical decline in Christianity. By the West, I mean Western Europe, North America, Australia and New Zealand. So I think Britain is just about now a majority atheist nation. It would certainly be very close to that. In Australia, uh, we're a bit more religious than Britain. uh, And the last census showed about 53% of Australians 
still identified as Christians. There are good methodological reasons for thinking that's a bit understated. So it's probably was about 56 or 57 percent. But at the same time, it's very heavily represented in the older cohorts. So uh, a good number of Christians would have died off since then and not been replaced by the younger cohorts. And in the United States, they're more religious again than we are, but they're suffering the same ambient decline. But a couple of things are worth noting about that. One is that uh, everywhere but the West, Christianity is doing very well. It's, it's the one force that Chinese Communist Party can't control. It's on fire in Africa. It's very dynamic in Latin America and so on. Uh, so it's a very eccentric position the West is going to. The other thing is Christianity is certainly not going to die out in the West. I think all the nominal adherents have gone. And uh, it's certainly true that more older folks um, believe in Christianity than, than younger folks in Western societies. But in my last book, God is Good For You, I interviewed, I think, 14 politicians, all of whom were believing Christians. And um, one reason for doing that was just to show readers that the most sophisticated and brilliant people that we have are believing Christians. So this was across parties, Tony Abbott, Malcolm Turnbull, uh, John Howard, Mike Baird, and from the Labor side, Bill Shorten, Kim Beasley, uh, Penny Wong. Uh, these folks are all conscientiously believing Christians, and they are the people we've entrusted to run our nation. Um, Dominic Perrottet is unusual because he's a fairly traditional Catholic, although I must say um, there's nothing particularly conservative about the New South Wales government. I, I mean, the the madness in the New South Wales schools is quite as crackpot as the madness uh, anywhere in Australia. And um, if I had a, an early criticism of a Perrottet government, but, but I wish him all the best, you know, I'm, I'm sure he's going to be a good premier and everything. It would not be that they're too conservative or too Catholic or anything like that. It would be that they just go along with the zeitgeist like all the other governments in Australia with a, a sort of a wan, pallid, um, anemic managerialism from the political leaders, uh, whereas the real decisions are made by the bureaucracy enslaved to um, the high points of the culture in academe and media, which are, you know, quite anti-Christian and in a sense quite anti-West. So I'll stick with you just for a moment, Greg. So do you think then that what we're seeing is a a proxy for something else, uh, a proxy for uh, them feeling that they conservative or conservative values, which Dominic Perrottet, socially conservative values, he undoubtedly holds. He he uh, he, he was not in favour of of uh, deregulating abortion when that came to the Parliament. Um, he has indicated he would not be in favour of of uh, uh, you know a, a euthanasia um, bill passing and and so on. Um, is, is in essence, is there, is there a proxy war going on here? Is, is Christianity become almost a, a proxy for conservative values? Well, I think you're right, Nick. Uh, uh, you know, Perrottet has committed thought crimes, according to the, to the sort of the woke zeitgeist. You know, he, he, he didn't uh, vote in favour of decriminalising abortion laws. Of course, the law in New South Wales is since kind of hypocritical and mad because abortion has been completely free in New South Wales for many, many, many years. But formally, the law still held that it was illegal. And if you believe that it's the taking of innocent life, you wouldn't want the law to change because that removes the moral statement that um, that the unborn human being has has some intrinsic rights. But Perrottet's vote against that was completely um, 
you know, in effect, if it didn't have any effect on on the passage of uh, of the amending legislation or anything like that. And I think, oddly enough, so I agree with you, Nick. Absolutely, conservative social values thought crime is is unforgivable by the left. But a couple of other things strike me though. Really, one is that uh, conservatives, it's good that they fight and lose all these battles. I mean, I wish they would fight and win, but it's better to fight and lose than not to fight and lose. Very important. Jim Mullen once said to me that often a soldier's role in a battle is simply to die. You have to impose some cost on the enemy and you have to make it clear that the battle is worth fighting for. So um, it's good that people like Perrottet vote their conscience. But um, uh, two things strike me. One is the, the sort of the the real enthusiasts for woke politics, because they no longer have any religious belief at all, they invest every crazy cause that they take up, which varies, you know, the, the sort of specific ideological orthodoxy around gender is different today from what it was two years ago and will be different again in two years time. But whatever their current obsession is, it becomes enormously um, passionate, it becomes a sin against religious conviction because they don't find any meaning in life other than through their politics. I'm not talking about them as individuals, but culturally, the only thing that infuses meaning is their politics, whereas that's a terrible view for a human being to have. But on the other hand, I'd say social conservatives have been spectacularly unsuccessful in translating their views into any coherent policy. Now, I, I don't expect that they can, you know, overturn abortion laws or probably resist euthanasia. But why does a conservative government in New South Wales produce education as bad as we've got in New South Wales? We've had all these years of conservative government and not a speck, you know, the last um, education, conservative education minister who tried to reform the school system was Terry Metherill. And I think Bob Carr did more for um, for literacy and historical literacy than any liberal government has. So it's not just that the left persecutes conservatives, it's that conservatives are incredibly unsuccessful in arguing their case. David, let's go back to uh, the subject of your book, Robert Menzies, um, and talk a bit about um, the way, and you trace this brilliantly through your book, the way that essentially Christian values, Christian thinking, the Judeo-Christian tradition more broadly funnels its way, if you like, through the figure of Robert Menzies uh, into the foundations of the Liberal Party and into some of its foundational principles and beliefs. Uh, but more so, these are the principles that would be broadly accepted, right? Love, love thy neighbour as thyself and so forth. Talk a bit about that first. Yes, certainly. So, um... Menzies, as you'd be aware, was a uh, identified as a Presbyterian, yet he um, he espoused a form of Christianity that was very broad and ecumenical, and that um, drew from a lot of different influences, uh, not only from Methodism but also um, Presbyterianism and um, sort of a broad uh, liberal, socially engaged Protestantism and uh, even Evangelicalism as well. And so when Menzies founded the Liberal Party in the mid-1940s, it was never founded in a moral or spiritual vacuum. 
It's true on the one hand that it was never founded as a confessionally Christian party or as the ecclesiastical party that was the arm of any church. Rather, it was a uh, secular liberal party, but one based very deeply on um, Judeo-Christian principles. And so um, it affirmed um, traditional Protestant values in um, thrift and um, sobriety and um, personal responsibility that were all emphasised by the Calvinist um, or Puritan tradition of Christianity. And then it also spoke of uh, family life and subsidiarity and community life and um, sort of the interdependent nature of society where people were related to each other. Uh, to use the expression of the Apostle Paul, every citizen was a member of one another. And so, uh, again, to use uh, the biblical phrase, uh, Menzies described people as each other's brother's keeper. And so these values um, resonated uh, with Christianity across the board, um, including with um, Catholic social teaching that... Um, emphasises all of these values, as well as uh, the traditional Protestant churches in Australia. So, so they're essentially foundational values, and in Robert Menzies' day would have been uncontroversial, but now uh, we have in this, this great secular movement, if I can call it that, although I think it misunderstands the meaning of the word secular, but this great anti-religious um uh, sentiment uh, on, on which is widespread, right, Greg? On the on the progressive left, uh, not universal, but widespread. Um, uh, that that to many ways clashes with that um, more traditional view, certainly on matters like the family um, and those sort of issues. Ha have we? Are we now then in a less, a more fractured, less less certain? society than we were in, say, 1966 when Robert Menzies stepped down. We certainly are that, Nick. Absolutely. I agree with your analysis there 100 percent. So um, we uh, it's interesting if you if you look at the culture, just take some obvious indicators, all the all the, uh, the best picture Academy Awards and all the best selling book lists from, say, the 1930s through to the 1960s were dominated by Christian uh, Christian themes, Christian books, um, Christian movies. Uh, the, the culture was very supportive of Christianity, but also it was very supportive of what you might call natural morality. So there were, there were codes in Hollywood that you couldn't uh, portray in a film someone benefiting from murder, for example. And, uh, you know, we now rail against that as terrible censorship and so forth. But actually, it was a moral consensus in the society about what human dignity was about and what the human project was about, what human solidarity demanded. Uh, whereas um, since the 1960s, we've had really a, a series of cultural revolutions which have torn the Western mind apart. Uh, just as St. Paul tore the ancient mind apart with his universalism, so... Um, the kind of derivatives of the old Marxism have torn the Western mind apart with their hyper-relativism. 
So postmodernism teaches us that there are no grand narratives. There's nothing to unite us. Um, identity politics is an absolute repudiation of Christianity's universalism. So the great statement of universalism comes from Paul. There is neither uh, Jew nor Greek, slave nor free, male and female, but you're all one in Christ Jesus. Now, contemporary ideology says, no, 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 no. You are um, simply an amalgam of your racial and gender characteristics and your virtue is to be determined by how those characteristics stack up. And, um, you know, you have this absurd thing where where students going to British universities have to sign a, a statement um, asserting their personal guilt if they're white. Well, how, how ridiculous is this? And, of course, this leads to a reaction then on the right wing of politics as Christianity declines, you... you uh, lose the Christian right with its transcendent beliefs and you just get a tribalist right, which responds to these identity politics by saying, well, if, if you can have identity politics, we can have it too. So then you get a resentful white identity politics on the right, which is just as destructive as identity politics on the left. Now, this is certainly fracturing society, causing tremendous division. It's extremely illiberal. People get cancelled and rubbed out and so on. I saw a, an interview with the star of... Um, of uh, Game of Thrones the other day in, in I think, the Australian uh, colour magazine. And he was saying he was very scared because he didn't want to say anything which might inadvertently offend large numbers of people. So there's a young bloke who ought to be free and easy at the top of his game, a worldwide movie star, fantastic. You'd expect him to have a bit of social responsibility, instead of which he's terrified that he might inadvertently use the wrong term or something and find that he has um, offended the new doctrines of, uh, of identity politics. Where this all ends up is a bit unclear, but it does seem to me that liberalism properly understood is a fulfilment and child of Christianity. But if you take Christianity completely away from liberalism, it goes mad and it loses the essential mm. balance. You know, all truths have to be held in balance with other truths. Heresy or fanaticism generally does not start with a lie, but it starts with one truth, which it holds to the exclusion of all other truths. And uh, at the same time as the West has never been under greater challenge externally from vigorous societies, it is becoming itself incapable of sustaining any meaningful narrative uh, for its own citizens and any uh, unifying idea of citizenship. I mean, I'm like everybody else, I'm completely opposed to racism. But the great unifying thing in Australia used to be citizenship. But even that's under attack now. Yeah, and I think, David, this is one of the things that your book brought home to me. I started to think about this afresh. I've always, as we often talk about, the Judeo-Christian tradition as being the underpinnings of our civilised society. But I think your book showed me where Greg was going there, that it, it's more than the underpinnings, it's the central core. Uh, and if you take it away, the whole thing is in danger of collapsing. Uh, is that a you see? I mean, so the, I guess, let, let's put this question to you. Can you have a liberal philosophy in the way that Menzies uh, conceived of it if you not only deny the existence of God, but you deny the existence of these, the importance of these fundamental gospel principles? Well, I think one has to be mindful of what you might call the cut flower syndrome, whereby 
if you uh, take away the spiritual life source of something, be it the Liberal Party or any other Western institution, um, what will happen is that it will continue to survive and flourish for a little while, but like cut flowers, they'll eventually wither and die because they're cut off from their spiritual source. And uh, I think that's a danger here with both um, the Liberal Party and with civil society at large, that when the uh, Christian foundation has been depleted or uh, even totally uh, repudiated, then uh, spiritual and moral decay will ensue. And so um, to put it in positive terms, um, the uh, Christian Foundation was truly essential um, to the Liberal Party and to uh, civil society. It gave these um, spheres their sense of uh, moral purpose and the belief that um, every human being was intrinsically valuable because every man and woman was created in the image of God. And not only were was everyone related to God, but we were all related to each other as uh, brothers and sisters. And so this was the um, essential yoke of civil society, that we were all bound together. And um, that sense of human dignity is so important, and um, it explains why um, Christians and other people have uh, taken a strong stand um, against abortion and against euthanasia because they believe in the uh, sanctity of human life and um, the importance of, uh, of being a human being created in God's image because Christians believe that uh, we were not only created uh, in God's image but we have also been redeemed by God through Jesus Christ and given new life to be new people, new men and new women that have been redeemed by Christ. And so every life potentially has eternal value. And um, I think that these uh, beliefs have given fire uh, to our democracy and mm. um, fire to uh, human progress um, from the movement to uh, abolish slavery and to reform the prisons and to uh, give women greater enfranchisement and suffrage. And um, I believe that um, the great social movements of our uh, history have been uh, inspired by this belief uh, that we are all created in God's image and that um, we can be redeemed by God and uh, achieve wonderful things on this earth. Well, yeah, let, let, let's take let's take that wonderful metaphor, the cut flower syndrome, uh, which is sort of chilling at the same time, right, Greg? So you know, I know that you, the, you know, the, the wonderful long-stemmed roses that you buy for your wife every Valentine's Day, they're going to last much longer than the ones that you just pick up in the servo, but they will eventually uh, fade and die. Now, if we think of that in in the context of the way our society has gone in the last 50 years or so, uh, you know, there was a, uh, from 1966 to 71, between the two censuses in Australia, there was suddenly a big growth in the number of people who ticked the no religion box 
before it was two percent or thereabouts and it, it, it's suddenly gone up to now it's you know what in the 30s i think um so the and the and, and religion has been less or faith has been less part of our society you know religious instruction at schools has become optional in some schools it doesn't happen i think victorian schools it's it's look it's frowned upon altogether um people are not going taking their kids to sunday school at the same degree so eventually after two three maybe generations any knowledge of the christian faith starts to disappear doesn't it from people's heads and i'm concerned about this uh you know that if you even just a simple thing like the good samaritan may not mean much to um you know a young person who hasn't had the benefit of any sort of religious teaching whatsoever what do you think well look nick i couldn't agree with you more i, I mean it's, it's absolutely barking mad what our culture is doing it's just screaming batshit crazy you know we've got the greatest book in the history of humanity the bible now even if you're not a believer you'd want to be acquainted with this uh, you know the most militant atheist richard dawkins argues that bible literacy is essential for cultural literacy in the west julia gillard very graciously our only recent atheist prime minister said that she thought it was terribly important to have scripture scripture knowledge the great biographer of St. Paul, N.T. Wright, argues that Paul's writings are among the most important in the history of human uh, civilization. They ought to be studied not only in religious contexts, but in philosophy classes, literature classes, psychology classes, indeed politics classes. But where are they studied at all? Every poor student is required to undergo some ridiculous version of the Safe Schools program. But under no circumstances at all are we ever going to introduce them to the greatest book of Western civilization. Now, this is a situation full of paradoxes. Christianity is a universal religion. It's not a Western religion. But it is the case that Western civilization is the child of Christianity. So we are determined to know nothing about our own history. We're also, um, uh, you know, I like David's metaphor about the cut flowers. And French intellectual Ernst Renan put it, in a similar thought in a different way, he says we're trying to live, live off the scent of an empty vase. And for a while, society does live off its moral capital. It uses the moral categories of Christianity, even when it rejects Christianity. One of those moral categories is universal human rights. Universal human rights is not a universally held view across humanity. It's not even an automatic view. We're creating a neo-pagan society, and the last time we had a pagan society was hypersexualized, like now, was very bad for women and girls, like now, was very violent, like now, and it, uh, it did not regard um, human rights as universal. Now, i give you one illustration of this, Nick. I happen to have a little debate on the ABC Q&A program with the atheist philosopher Peter Singer a year or two ago. Very nice guy, Peter Singer, very good philosopher, very good yeah. person. I don't, I don't have any criticism of him personally, and he's a very useful philosopher because he takes mm. ideas to their mm. logical conclusion. And I put to him something he'd written in one of his books that uh, handicapped children should be left, uh, severely handicapped children should be left to die if their parents don't want to take care of them. And they have less utility than a sentient am uh, mammal, like a baboon or a dog or a cat. And he said, yes, that was indeed his view. And he was a bit shocked that I thought they should be kept alive. And he said, what are you saying, Greg? that they should be kept alive just because they're members of our species. 
And I said, yes, that's absolutely what I'm saying. Because they are human beings, they have an inherent, ineradicable human dignity, which we have an obligation to respect and honour at every stage of their lives, whether they're handicapped or frail or old or young or whatever. Now, he is a very civilised guy, Peter Singer, but that is where the culture goes when it cuts itself off from Christianity. Life itself becomes relativised. Some life is valuable, some life is not valuable. And that's just one of a million cases of where the culture goes. Now, the final point, Nick, this is a very interesting temptation for conservatives because conservatives of a certain age are inclined to say, yes, the cultural benefits of Christianity are obvious, but I can't bring myself to believe and I don't think religious belief is essential. That's fair enough. As an individual statement, that's perfectly fair enough. But that gets you nowhere in terms of the future of the culture because you cannot say to a young person, aged 18, aged 20, aged 22, full of the idealism and heroism of youth, you cannot say to them, this story is completely fraudulent. It's a superstition. It has no inherent meaning. It never happened. And I want you to live your life by the values that it espouses. You, you can sell that message to a 59-year-old or a 69-year-old wizened conservative. You can't sell it to a young person. So I'm not making this as a normative statement, but as an analytical statement. I don't think the West can survive as the West without uh, religious belief. Well, the word belief, yeah, and 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 you know, to go back to Robert Menzies, your 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 study of him uh, is intriguing. We, we we you and I, David, spoke to Heather Henderson, his daughter, when you were writing this book, and 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 she she said, look, he wasn't a very religious man at all, in that he, you know he didn't say grace before meals and those kind of things. But I think it's clear from the book, the the you know the writings that you've found, his speeches. Um, he did believe. He was a true believer. This it, he believed in it solidly. It wasn't just a. a was that was that your conclusion at the end of it? It wasn't just a sort of intellectual framework. It was something that he actually believed in his soul. That he might, like Greg, have had a big thing about angels going on in his head. Or, you know, he, that, that he believed it deeply. Was that the impression you came out with? Yes, most certainly. So, um, as I mentioned earlier, he's. Um Christianity was drawn from many different uh, streams and traditions, including uh, evangelical Protestantism, uh, where he imbibed his great love of the Bible and his daily habits of reading the Bible. Um, I think it's true that he was not a, um, you know, an evangelical sort of enthusiast in the mould of, say, a Billy Graham. But um, his faith, I think, was real and um it was heartfelt and uh it shaped his entire world view um his uh speeches and uh pronouncements were peppered with biblical turns of phrase and aphorisms and um his whole conception of democracy and philosophy of freedom was based on christian biblical precepts uh, he once said that the um, oldest statement of democracy is actually found in a verse in uh, the early part of Genesis where um, Cain has been guilty of uh, murdering his brother Abel. And when Cain is confronted by God, Cain says to God, 
Am I my brother's keeper? And that for Menzies was uh, the first expression of democracy. And um, also uh, Menzies drew from the Apostle Paul when uh, writing to the Corinthians, uh, Paul said that um, we are all members of one another. And um, that was in the context of um, his teaching about um, people being uh, contributors to the church as a whole body. Well, Menzies took that concept and he extrapolated it to civil society to show that um, just as uh, people in the church are members of Christ's body, um, ordinary uh, citizens in society are members of one another and uh, work together to uh, advance the common good. And so um, Menzies was profoundly shaped by Christianity. And he also uh, believed in what um, this American um, public intellectual, Os Guinness, has described as the golden triangle of freedom. And I think Guinness himself adopts this concept from the great uh, 19th century uh, philosopher, Alexis de Tocqueville. And it's basically the thesis that um, for freedom to survive, it has to be grounded in virtue. And for virtue to flourish, it has to be grounded in faith. And for faith to be able to flourish, it has to have freedom. And so this triangle continues ad infinitum. And uh, Menzies believed that um, freedom virtue and faith were all inextricably intertwined and uh, that was the golden thread of civil society. Finally, as we draw this to a close, we might talk about this issue of freedom of religion, um, which is, you know, implicitly under threat by the kind of um, attacks we've seen against Dominic Perrottet. Uh, there's a, a vocal, but I probably agree with Greg, not a a large proportion of uh, the commentariat who who believe strongly that it, you know there should be no discussion of Christianity in in the in the public square. But even even more than that, that if you if you have a Christian faith, then it somehow makes you um, almost unqualified to be in the public square. So so th this is going on all the way. But it seems to me to go back that issue of freedom that that David highlighted, Greg. Freedom of religion is fundamental to freedom of thought and respect for individuals. If we don't say that uh, every, you know, you're entitled in this country to have any faith or none, and that no, you know, we're not going to think better or worse of you for any of that, that's your personal faith. That is the kind of true respect for every individual that, that to me is fundamental. Uh, so rather than being, as some say, um, a fundamentalist or an exclusive way of thinking, I think that was one of the criticisms made of Perrottet in that article to which you referred to, it's actually an embracing thing, isn't it, freedom of religion? It's actually saying we accept everybody. Well, that's right, Nick. Um, I think this is quite a vexed and difficult question. Freedom of religion is absolutely critically important, but... Um, I don't quite agree absolutely with the idea that freedom of any religion. I mean, a lot of people then create fake religions in order to 
um, enjoy the legislative benefits of freedom of religion. Or you get people trying to take over a church in order to become a Satan worshipping cult and so on. I'm not saying they should be outlawed, but I'm not convinced that we need to give them the same respect that we give to to a real religion. And the difficulty with legislating about it is that in the end, you're going to get judges deciding what is a true religious belief. So someone will say, mm. my desire to um, enslave teenage girls or something is part of my religious belief. And then a judge will have to rightly decide whether that's real or not. But what this, this uh, indicates, though, is the breakdown of common sense, consensus, reasonableness in our society, because probably the best guarantees of these freedoms are the common law traditions. But you have to legislate for something which in the past was just accepted because the basic fundamental consensus of society is breaking down. And if you have to legislate for each individual little bit of behaviour, this becomes unbelievably cumbersome and also very restrictive. Now, I think the predominant threat to normal religious freedom is a threat against Christians. It's not a threat against other religious traditions. And it is an institutional threat, and it takes this kind of form. It is the uh, zeitgeist ideology is becoming extremely illiberal in its liberalism, extremely coercive, extremely intolerant. And it says to Christian institutions, you cannot uh, preach your traditional Christian view because that contradicts woke ideology, and it is against the law for you to contradict woke ideology. So a Christian school um, cannot teach uh, that marriage is between a man and a woman exclusively because that will be seen as discrimination against uh, staff or students who are gay and believe marriage should be for gay people as well. So. I'm not adjudicating on the merits of that argument, but I do believe Christian institutions must be allowed to practice their their Christian beliefs. I mean, uh, famously, a Canadian law school uh, was, you know, discredited, you know, couldn't get accreditation because it asked its students to take some pledge or other, maybe chastity before marriage or no alcohol or something. You couldn't try that uh, in an Irish um, school. But, but the... The infringement of institutions, Christian schools, Christian hospitals are required to practice euthanasia, required to assist in abortions, even if not directly, then indirectly, which outrages their conscience. They're not allowed to say, well, we simply don't offer that service here. And then you could go and get it somewhere else. They've got to assist you with that service or uh, refer you on to someone. So you're asking them to outrage their conscience. In the euthanasia case, you're asking them to become active killers uh, or lose their government accreditation. Orphanages, which, um, or not orphanages, adoption agencies, which traditionally adopted to traditional families, are, will be run out of business and lose their government accreditation. And because so much of our society now is required in government accreditation, priests are not allowed to maintain the seal of the confessional. It's against the law. Lawyers are allowed to maintain their seal of confidentiality because the Royal Commission said it has some social utility. But the Royal Commission doesn't believe that the sacrament of uh, confession as practiced by Catholics and Anglicans and Orthodox, uh, Eastern Orthodox religions has any social utility. So you will increasingly find 
situations where priests will have to sign in order to do certain sorts of government work, they'll have to eventually sign a declaration saying that they will breach the doctrines of their church in regards mm. to the confessional. Mm. And this will go on and on and on and on right throughout society. It's terribly important that the Christian churches fight these battles, even if they lose. They have to insist Christians are now probably a minority in our society. We need to demand minority rights, not so much for ourselves, but a minority rights for the truth, so that the truth at least is allowed to appear in the public square because the encroaching arms of illiberal liberalism, ideological coerciveness, will try to strangle Christian institutions and those institutions will be tempted to say, oh, well, look, we never talk about these issues anyway. Let's just go along with it. Or what does it matter if we have to do this one thing that we disagree with profoundly? We can do all the other good things that we believe in. And I don't think that's, uh, that's a good way for Christian institutions to go. Of course, religious freedom extends to people of other religions, Hindus, Buddhists, Sikhs, Muslims, everybody. It's a very difficult, uh, it's a very difficult area to legislate, though, because you'll certainly get Islamist extremists. I mean, you'll get Hizbut Tahrir, as they already do. They're banned in many, many countries. They're an Islamist extremist organization. They'll say in this country, well, we don't advocate violence and you can't regulate our, our extremism. But the very fact that we have to legislate over this is a sign that the common sense, the comedy, the consensus that underlies society is breaking down. Mm. Mm. Well, look, I always feel that it's my responsibility as host of these podcasts to end with a redemptive note. Uh, and I'm going to find it actually in, in your, both of your books. Uh, I, let me tell you that, you know, I, I, as I said at the start, the start of this podcast, I've had you both on quite recently um, as separate guests talking about your respective books. And they've been some of the most listened to podcasts we've done all year, uh, which is testimony to to your uh, your the respect in which you're held, Greg, I'm sure, and David, but but more so the subject of your books. Mm. So, could you just round off briefly, both of you, David, starting with you, uh, the reaction to the book, um, which, like Greg's, is 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 a solid intellectual work that doesn't it doesn't pull back from actually dealing with some deep theological truths. Um, the reaction to your book, uh, whether you've had any negative reaction, uh, but generally are you encouraged? David, starting with you. Well, thank you, Nick. Um, yes, I have been encouraged. Um, I got um, a lovely um, endorsement from uh, Tim Costello uh, down there in Melbourne who really um, appreciated the... Uh, spotlight that the book shone on the faith of Menzies and um, Costello himself um, identifies very strongly with the uh, in particular the uh, humanitarian Christian um, ideals of the Liberal Party which um, saw the Menzies government uh, welcome immigrants and refugees and also um, the liberalism that he preached of uh, mutual obligation and um, of uh, citizens uh, serving one another um, and that emphasis on uh, responsibilities as well as rights. Um, and so that was really encouraging. And um, I guess um, with the book, um, my purpose was to show that um, 
Christianity is something that uh, is not only good for Christians, but good for all people. Um, the old uh, Archbishop of Canterbury, William Temple, once said that the uh, church is the only society that exists for the benefit of those who are not its members. And uh, it's true also that Christians worship a God who not only sends rain on the unrighteous, but also the righteous. And um, so it is that um, when we uh, embody a Christian spirit, we are um, contributing to a creed that is the least sectional and most universal of all creeds because the Christian message is open to all people of all races and all cultures and nationalities and it transcends those uh, barriers of um, sex and race and class and, and um, it uh, affirms our universal huma humanity. Greg? Well said, David, and congratulations again on your book. Uh, so, Nick, um, uh, I, I've been thrilled and delighted and astonished by the reaction to this book as to the last one. Um, I was very hesitant to sort of come out as a completely orthodox believing Christian. I mean, I've always been happy to barrack from the sideline for Christianity. But I and, and one of the reasons I write these books is to encourage all Christians to publicly own their beliefs. And I've really been thrilled by the reaction to the books. People sometimes say, who did you write the book for? But Nick, you will appreciate this more than anyone. We journalists write for everybody. We write for the educated layperson. It's not a book just for Christians. It's not a book just for atheists to try to convert them or something. It's a book from written as a professional journalist who believes the story is true and wants to interrogate the, the uh, scriptures and the arguments and so on in a professional journalistic uh, fashion. And I must say, the uh, I've had some really wonderful discussions about the book on the ABC, very, very good conversations. So I've been treated very graciously on the ABC. I, I, not only would I have no complaints, but the only complaint I'd have is that um, the ABC broadcaster, Richard Glover, his questions are so consistently more penetrating and insightful than my answers that uh, I sometimes think this is uh, a contrast not to my benefit. But the, the first book I read about God, God is Good For You, wonderful publishers, Alan and Unwin, they did a fabulous job on the book, had a very small print run, perfectly sensibly. Uh, Christian books tend to sell, you know, within their subgroup. And... Um, it ended up going into 10 or 12 or 14 reprints or something, and it's still selling well and got distributed in the United States and the UK in small numbers, but distributed there and absolutely wildly beyond the expectations of the publisher and wildly beyond the expectations of the author. The same with this book. It's I think it's uh, slightly outselling God is Good for You, even though half the bookshops in Australia are shut. It's written for, uh, for anybody who who has any interest in these ideas at all. So I hope that it will confirm existing Christians. I hope it'll make people who used to be Christians and fallen away think again. I hope that open-minded atheists will find it interesting. I hope that closed-minded atheists will find it challenging. I hope that people from other religious traditions will find it interesting. I tried to write it from first principles and, uh, and not to use any jargon, any theological jargon or any other jargon, as you'd know, Nick, uh, being such a great journalist yourself, 
jargon is the enemy of, um, of clear communication in journalism. So um, I'm, I'm absolutely thrilled to bits that the reaction has been so good. I don't know if I said this to you before, Nick, but I found a way to be the very best in your field. I might write a management guru book about this. Simply choose a field in which there are no other practitioners. So secular journalist books in favour of Christianity. I am both the best and simultaneously the worst in that field uh, all at once. And um, really, I'm tremendously grateful to anyone who's taken the trouble to read a book. The final thing I'd, I'd, um, I'd finish on, Nick, is that a reader who reads a book that you've written, and I'm sure you've had this experience as an author yourself, pays mm -hmm. you an enormous compliment. They've spent 10 yeah. or 12 or 14 or 16 hours in a deep immersion in a conversation with you through your book. They've allowed you to have, you know, rent-free accommodation in their minds in a deep conversation, which you only get in a book. You don't get it anywhere else. And, uh, you know, I'm just gobsmacked with joy and delight and gratitude that, um, you know, quite a significant number of people are, are doing this. And of course, even if one person did it, you'd think that's fabulous. But the fact that it seems like quite a lot of people are doing it, that's terrific. And it, it does show that um, people are quite keen, I think. Uh, my little book is not the key message here, but there is a big market actually for more Christian material in our mainstream culture. I think that's absolutely right. And um, it certainly goes from our experience here at Mentors Research Centre, uh, I'm confident that there'll be many people downloading, listening to this discussion as there were to the individual discussion. So thank you both very much to David First Roberts and to Greg Sheridan for joining me to continue this important discussion. Thank you, Greg, for joining us uh, from Melbourne. Thanks, Nick, and thank you, David. David, thank you. Thank you, Nick, and thank you, Greg. A pleasure to be with you both. been listening to another water cooler conversation brought to you by the Menzies Research Centre. We'd like to bring you many more of course and you can help us by subscribing from just $10 a month. Go to www.menziesrc.org slash subscribe. I'm Nick Cater and thank you for listening. Music.